for my love is like a Welcome to The Arts Respond, a Create Contribute Change production. I'm Anna MacDonald. Today we're speaking to Ruth Padel, poet, novelist, musician, activist. We're going to do a deep dive into how the arts can respond in this current difficult climate. Lots to talk about. Ruth Padel is an award-winning British poet, author, wildlife conservationist and musician. She currently has 12 poetry works, seven non-fiction novels and one wildlife novel to her name and in between time manages to be Professor of Poetry at King's College London. Welcome Ruth. Thank you Anna, hello. I Now full disclosure, Ruth and I are friends in real life so a lot of the questions that I'll be asking, I we are things that we have discussed before in different uh, different parties and different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the thing that I'd really like to start with is, I guess where everything start started, where the motivation for your creativity came from, um, what what inspired you to start writing, and and why did you settle maybe on poetry as, as your main medium? I'm going to make an assumption there. Yes. I find this very hard to say because um, it would never occur to me to to not try to try and not create. Um, I think poetry came in very early because I loved poetry. My mom used to read to me. I think that's one of the most of the biggest privileges anybody can have that your mom reads to you or tells you stories or tells you poetry, whether it's oral or whether it's read, it doesn't matter. And then when I was listening, I used to try and learn the poems. So I found I learned poems by heart without even knowing that that's what I was doing. And so poetry became for me very, very early a natural way of making sense of the world. And it was sort of informed also by music and by singing, above all by singing. Um, But it was putting words together. So um, particularly in this moment when... The world has become so uh, dark and turbulent and um, locked down. That very word down and lock um, is is sort of fettering to everybody. But meanwhile, the politics around us all globally are so scary. Um, But the only way I can make sense of any of that is is by putting words together. And, you know, this generation we've been... We've been so lucky and blessed. We haven't, we didn't go through a world war. Mm-hmm. In other in other parts of the world, of course, people have been persecuted, bombed out of houses, terrified. But in this little neck of the woods, we haven't had that until now. And now we have to show our our imaginative and and creative metal. It, it's really interesting to me what you say about poetry and, and learning that and um, from my own background, I, f- I feel very similarly about songs. But for me, yeah. like yourself, it's the story in there. It's the being able to um, hear from a, another human something that you can also relate to. Yes, it's as if a hand has come out and say to say, here's a, here's a story. You feel things about this. I feel things about this. We are together in feeling things about it. So the next question I had was around how the how you feel that poetry has defined you, and I, just to explain a little bit more about that, 
um, what I mean is that I know that you are very rooted in the folk culture, but also I know that you, you know, have studied um, the classics as well. And I just wonder where you, where, how you see the influence of both of those quite different types of, of writing and how they've influenced you and your work and your sort of place in society or life. Yeah, I think I don't make, I don't make compartments. So, um, for instance, I, um, you know, when I, when I look at, when I look at an animal in a forest, a wild animal in a forest, a squirrel or a fox or something, there would be going through my head what the animal is. Okay, so if I'm, if I'm looking at a, a deer or a fox in the forest, and first of all, there's the magic of actually seeing the animal there. And, and you know, I think there's no bigger privilege than just watching a wild animal be itself in, in the mm. place where it be- belongs. And then I might well think about, I mean, poet- poetry will come into my head. Stories will come into my head. Science will come into my head. All these different ways of looking at this fox in the forest. Um, and I think. For me, they're all complementary. I mean, they all um, belong together. It's a, it's a just like the folk, folk singing, is part of the music that I've loved in lots of different ways. Um, uh, but then academic things, you can have a you know the fox's trickster, all sorts of different things. So yeah. I think I don't, uh, for some reason or another, I don't ever want to privilege one way of looking at something over another. They all come in at me at the same time. <laughs> I completely understand that. And and you can draw from both because um, they're both such rich uh, wells of, um, I'm not saying that very well, because you, because you can draw experience, human, real human experience from both. Um, I wonder if there's one piece of work that for you that you've done is a real touchstone for that, something that you come back to, you return to whilst you're looking in, in different at, at different subjects or different directions? Well, I was thinking about this. I was thinking um, there's one little poem I wrote, which was in a book about, I wrote about migration. I wrote a book about migration about um, um, eight years ago, uh, which is about all migration. So starting with cells, cells migrate in our body, and then the beginning of, of the world, you know, the world was created by migration when cells began to expand life life the first starts of life on the world mm. and um and then animals and trees and birds of course and then people and it was poetry and prose so I, it was sort of it migrated as it were between the two forms <laughs> and it was then called the mara crossing because it was based on the in kenya there's a there's a river called the mara river um, where the wildebeest and zebra that migrate for six months finally have to cross this river at the end of it. And it's not such a deep river, but in the middle of it are, are lots of very hungry crocodiles. So it's very dangerous. And so and it's I was thinking of the dangerous crossing that every, every life form has to endure and tackle when it migrates. Human beings, of course, most of all. Um, and there was a little poem I wrote about digging up a bush in in my garden and while I was digging it up um, a robin was watching me and robins the robins we have in in England and Europe Scotland are are European robins 
and they are partial migrants. That is, they choose whether to migrate or not. And um, because it's a risk migrating, um, but it's also a, a risk staying through the winter and not finding any food and freezing to death. Um, and I'll just say this poem because it Absolutely. just has struck a chord with so many people. And for instance, there's a there's a girl from an indigenous girl from Alaska who's done a, a song about it. There's um, uh, a, a group of um, refugee charities with migrant refugees in Glasgow made a little film, a five minute film about it. Um, and it's it's open ended. It's just called Choice. Digging a bush up, pitching in to damp earth, getting out clutch arms and fingertip veins as easily broken as silk. I look into the mica eye of a robin. This is what we say we all want, the choice to go, to stay. But how does a robin decide? How does anyone? And that, I, I've, I've just been amazed over the last eight years that this is the little poem that people have picked out of this book, which does a lot of different things and um it's going to come out again this coming september and i'm updated it now to the syrian war to lesbos to all the awful mm -hmm. things that trump's people are doing on the borders of the united states and mexico um and it's going to be called now we are all from somewhere else but it's i think such, this such a beautiful title. moment thank you um, how does a robin decide how does anyone is it, it goes deep into, you know, what do our genes tell us to do at a moment of drama? What do our personalities, our, our position in life? But it's very open-ended. So we, you and I have both worked together on the, the um, during Refugee Week a couple of years ago yeah. um, with, with this group of poems. And I have to say, Ruth, that um, reading this book gave me all of my fun facts about robins also. It's also very informative, <laughs> um, as well as incredibly moving. Because um, a, a lot of people don't realise that, that robins can do both, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because we're so used to seeing them in the winter here. Yes, but quite often it's the females that go. And um, because robins can be very aggressive. And in the winter, a male robin wants to have its feeding territory to itself. So I think the, the, the women move out. <laughs> go to sunnier climes yes <laughs> but the and this actually yeah oh, sorry on you go well I, I was thinking about what else what other big thing I have, have done and, and I really it, what was very important for me was not the, the poems so I did write poems about it but it was the whole work on tiger conservation wild tiger conservation mm. and because of the tiger I went to lots of different uh, places in Asia where tigers live and so it was my introduction to parts of Asia and um, I'm now going to start you know 20 years later I'm going to start another book on elephants and I'm now calling this you me and the elephant and it's really about it's the wild our relations with the wild in, a, in an age of crisis because we are now in an age of crisis and um, the elephant is the biggest and most extraordinary um, land mammal and, and very very similar to us in lots of ways our social structure i was i was just trying to think of a way to say that um because they seemed 
as an animal, they are so smart and so loving and so empathetic and they move in these family groups and it feels as though we have a obviously a block in our communication with them, not least because of our behaviour, but it, it feels like it's not that far away in some That's senses. Right. Absolutely. They are very empathetic. They mourn. Um, but it's it's so interesting. When I did my tiger research, nearly all the books, in fact, all the books by, about wild tigers were, guess what, by men. And now mm. I look at the elephant <laughs> literature and nearly all the books on elephants, wild elephants, behaviour, communication, different stories, herds, all the rest of it, are by women. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I've got an idea of what the answer to this might be, but why do you think that, that this is? Because of exactly what you honed in on, on the empathy, and because it is so much about nurturing the young and um you know, caring for the young, caring in herds. And very often the um, elef- the female elephants will lead the way. I was reading a book last night about um, a man who, a man who was um, uh, in, in the 20s. He was sort of looking after uh, elephants in Burma, um, teak elephants that were employed in extracting the timber by our delightful uh, colonial um, uh organizations for for the benefit Mm. of the Brits and they were using Burmese elephants to do it and the elephants when they had to cross a dangerous river they always made a a woman elephant go first and somebody made a joke and said why why you know the elephants are big and strong and and one of the Uzis that's what the the Mahouts the the elephant riders are called they he said look um a men will often go where women are but women often do not want to go where men go. <laughs> Holds true yet again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm just at the beginning of this, but I, I, I do think that our relations with the wild. I mean, it's because of our relations with the wild that we've got COVID from the first place, because we are intruding into the wild and upsetting our, you know, what's going on in the wild, and then putting wild animals in in much too close proximity and so the rest of it that's where the the diseases come from and and with that in mind with with a much more sort of global holistic um hat on the hat that we should all be wearing at all times um what do you see as the next steps in the battle in terms of conservation what will actually make a difference somebody once said that the problems of conservation are universal but the solutions are always going to be local Um, and so in each country you've got to have different ways of defending the wild so in India there are various um, various solutions in in the in in the United Kingdom there are various solutions it's very interesting I was once up in um, north of Edinburgh the Edinburgh Zoo has got a sort of northern counterpart up in up in the highlands where there are moorland animals and there are tigers and I was doing a, a child's <coughs> children's um, work, poetry workshop there and then in the evening I did a talk about tigers and I was very pleased as a woman who she's tragically died now but she was living on a on an island in the west on the west of the west coast then and she came in specially and she was a a great tiger expert and had worked in bangladesh and so on tessa she was there i was you know there were lots of very interesting people there i talked about tigers and then um stopped and there were questions and in five minutes we were talking about badgers 
because for the people who live around Kinusi, the badgers are the ones they have difficulties with because they eat their chickens. And yeah. if you live by wild animals, beside wild animals, and you are trying to make a living and you have chickens or you have um, cows, whatever it is, and tigers, you have the same sorts of problems. But the solutions are always going to be different and local. I mean, I absolutely hear that. And I think that we also do create our own problems in that, don't we? Like releasing pine martins and, yeah. and areas that they shouldn't be. And, and that causes its own difficulties by upsetting not just the you know the environment um balance but the the local and habitat as well but when but one thing we really need is to follow Greta Thunberg I mean she's you know she says this has been a moment in which we could change things um if only we can if only if only we can hold our really awful governments at the moment to account um any uh, thoughts on how to do that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, no, I mean, it is true that um, public pressure does work, you know, um, environmentally, um, you know, so for instance, plastics or, or um, you know, ever since um, that Attenborough film showed a turtle or, or mangled up in a mm. net or, or plastics, a sea of plastics, people have been much, much more aware of it, but it takes... It takes a huge movement to do that and to hold the the um, large, um, you know, vested interests to account. And I think that's one of the things you've always done with through your work is use you know use your your work platform to exactly do that to the platform these issues to hold people to account to um, bring people who might not know what's going on into the discussion. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I've just been gone online, there's something <coughs> Extinction Rebellion now has a writer's, writer's rebel. If you look up writer's oh. rebel and look up my name, I've got 20, something I call 24 splashes of denial. And it's about water yes. and the most important thing that water I saw that. is. Oh, you sort of. Yes, thank you. And, mm. um, and I wanted not just to talk about how important water is, um, the dangers of it and the absolute necessity of it, but also I wanted to, as it were, do some water divination around the psychology of denial how can how can what's going on when people deny climate change deny that something is happening do you know you remember in um, noise flood um in noise flood I, I remember once all my family was in it i was playing the viola in an orchestra my brother and sister were playing cello and fiddle and my two youngest brothers were i think animals i think my youngest brother was a blue tit and um um but there's a moment which I'll never forget. I've never seen it since when Mrs. Noah just wants to drink with her gossips and I will drink with my gossips and mm-hmm. they have to pull her away to get her on the ark. Um, and, you know, that's what that's that's what's happening. The, the denialists are the people who are drinking and refusing, refusing to listen to Noah. Because this is I mean, we're in 2020, we're in the heart of a global pandemic um, and this feels like a real moment to pause and have a look around. I think people are finding that on every level of life, work-wise, family-wise, living-wise, environmentally, you know, sort of from the, the very at home to the local to the global. Um, this seems like a real moment to be able to contemplate how we want to move forward. Yes, yeah. 
um, but there are so many vested interests against it. I've been thinking about Black Lives Matter and thinking about how to put on an event which would be poetry and Black Lives Matter and dismantling privilege, how hard it is to dismantle privilege and dismantling how you feel comfortable, whether mm. that's psychologically or socially or physically or materially, is a very hard thing to do. How do you set about dismantling your your own comfort that obviously with the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, that's been brought home um, sort of on a, on a daily basis, rightly so, in the last few weeks. And um, there's been a lot of discussion around it, how you sit in your own discomfort, how you actually, to, ha- to have the insight to know that that's what you're doing yeah. and not just to, to, to sit and think that doesn't feel comfortable, I'm just not going to think about it. Yeah. But to, to acknowledge that if there's some resistance to this, then there's probably something that you need to to um there's a thread there that you need to be pulling at is even that is actually quite a radical act in some ways it is but but it is a moment when we just think even huge as black lives matter is it's even bigger when we take in the rest of 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 nature because we have got Mm. to think about dismantling our privilege in relation to the rest of nature um in order to save nature and save ourselves as well as save ourselves um we're all part of the same thing. Uh, it's so yeah. Hard. It's it's interesting because you're right. We do live in a time when it's it's very easy to forget that you can feel very distanced from nature. You know, you live in somewhere like London, or even to a lesser extent, Manchester or Glasgow or or Edinburgh. You know, it it's easy to forget. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I I was very conscious of it when we came out on Thursday evenings to clap for. For the NHS and you know we have a garden at our back we live in a, a what was a council house but now it's our house um, and opposite me are council flats and I don't think the people who live in them have any access to um, green nature at all of their own um, and this is so unequal. I mean is, is that's the very beginning isn't it of it when you start to to pull at these threads and and realize just how like the division is so huge um so with that in mind how do you feel the arts could respond to this as a community because they've been continually ignored throughout this and actually if we look at what people are doing to keep their spirits up they turning to music or theater or cinema or and what we're not doing is investing the money um, at the grassroots to allow that to blossom into into the work that we now celebrate and which which kept us all sane during this time. So with with the sort of idea that we would like to increase diversity and access and equality and impact, what what do you think we should change and what do you think we should keep? Well, I think we should keep small. I mean, I mean, if you can, if you can persuade this government to put any money into anything, put it into small groups, education groups, small dramas, music, choir. I mean, it's so hard because singing is the most natural thing of all, and singing apparently is the most super spreading thing you can possibly do for COVID. Um, I don't know what you do about that because it's apparently it's decimated choirs all over the world. Um, um, doing things small I mean I think the best and most gripping performance of Tosca I've ever seen 
within a village barn and all the children had done things and they were all part of it and the, the, the Toreador's costume was made of milk bottle tops and it was just wonderful and gripping and I would take that any time over, over you know, Covent Garden or Blindbourne. Um, and I think in, it's perhaps a moment when we can disengage the arts from privilege. If we could do that, that would be a wonderful thing. And to, and to, That's incredible. And to put them into, to, to, to align them with um, human need. I've always felt that there's a poem-shaped space in everybody, that poet, people need poetry. Um, and I think this is true of drama as well. And of course, it's true of music. Um, so. it, it's such an interesting time. Um, and there's you're, you're absolutely right in that this is the moment. This is the one moment, certainly since in, in my lifetime, when we could potentially disengage the arts from privilege. What The flip side of that is what would we keep? What is working just now, if anything? Well, I think a lot of people, you know, um, who already liked classical music were, were you know, people, um, was it Yo-Yo Ma did a lot of, of um, mm-hmm. very early on, he did um, things on, on Twitter and so on. Um, but that's fine. But what you want to get is to engage people who don't already love it. I mean, I, you know, I, the book, my new book uh, on Beethoven was a, was rather a casualty of, of COVID because I had a lot of... Um, poetry readings lined up with really wonderful musicians and um, of course none of those things could happen but I put something on my website about him as artist of hope because he was he was in his own kind of lockdown because of deafness Um, Mm -hmm. and he was such a lonely person and yet very gregarious and yet however agonized his music it seems to me that his they always each piece ends up with a note of hope and communication outwards. He wrote on one thing, um, from the heart, may it go to the heart. And I would love to be able to, you know, what I hoped my book would do would be to reach beyond people who think of him as classical music, therefore elitist, therefore don't want, don't, don't pick it up. But this is a man who was desperately creative, desperately lonely, made a mess of all his relationships, but kept yearning for contact and for the good in people and if only could you know I would love to make I would love to be able to give people that sense of of him as a person which would actually lead them to listen to his music as as if it could belong to them wouldn't that be wonderful if people felt that Beethoven could belong to them could mean something to them that would be incredible and I think that that mode of thinking as well could make a lot more um, of the offerings from from the arts accessible to people. Um, Now, I could talk all day, as you know, but (laughs) I am aware that we are about to hit the half an hour mark. So I've got my quick fire question round. Okay, ma'am. Are you ready? I am. Okay. So I've focused very much on your poetry work today, but what is your favourite medium to work in? Poetry. Uh, Definitely, yeah. grand. You did a huge amount of research for the book we were just talking about, Beethoven's Variations, Poems on a Life. Um, what is the one thing that you discovered that you would absolutely want to share? We might have just covered that, but in case there's an odd fact. His unbelievable, relentless creativity 
and whatever happens to him, um, he wants to make things new. And he did have this time of, of a sort of barren five years when he had writer's block and was a composer who wasn't really composing um, and he was miserable but he read a lot during during it and out of that came the 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 um you know the late music the late quartets the Mrs. Solemnis the Ninth Symphony the Hammerclavier Sonata and he so many things that he all of them different and he just wanted to create for other people out of his loneliness, out of his agony, out of his anger, out of this mess he made of his life. <laughs> I think we can all relate to certainly bits of that. Um, <laughs> who has been the most influential artist or person in on your creative life? Oh, crikey. Oh, I know. Um, I know. Kept it. Um, I don't know. Uh, perhaps... Homer, I mean, or Shakespeare, or Homer, or somebody who leads it could have maybe it's Beethoven. Um, but actually, I did do a book about Darwin too, and Darwin also had this humility and wonder. And it's anybody who really, really thinks shares with humility and integrity their own um, difficulties and how they make sense of the world. That, um, mm. I can't, I can't get a a person more than that. I mean, Elizabeth Bishop, wonderful, wonderful poet. She, she, she's a great um, influence on my life. But then, you know, there's also Sappho, another um, wonderful poet, um, <laughs> and um, uh, T. S. Eliot. Um, so many different poets. And, and yeah, you do you what you do like straddle so many different areas as well. I'm not surprised by that answer at all. Um, would you consider doing any online launches of your book, Beethoven Variations, Poems on a Life, with musicians also? Yes, of course. I, I love doing it with musicians. I mean, that's what we that's what I've been trying to trying to set up. When uh, on New Year's Day, we had we were on, I was on front row with it with um, Stephen Huff, and the producer um, said, "Okay, well that's lovely. Now both of you, can you you've got a poem, Ruth, called um, Moonlight Sonata." And um, Stephen, could you just um, play the beginning of Moonlight Sonata and, and Ruth can voice over it? And Stephen and I looked at each other and <laughs> um, I said, well, I suppose we can, um, but I don't expect either Stephen or I think it's a very good idea. And why don't we try it? And then afterwards, we'll <laughs> each record a little bit so you can take your pick. But actually, it worked extremely well. My poem is very short and Stephen, of course, is is Stephen Huff and um, we were both sort of sensitive to each other and the and magically the the move I don't know they just seemed to work for about sort of two minutes and um that was it was a dream but I don't approve of that I mean I you know I, I'd rather just listen to the <laughs> Moonlight Sonata and have somebody listen to my poem separately of but course. um yeah I I would love to do that yeah so last question Ruth you have one change and only one that you can implement to help the world in its current sorry state, what would it be? Um, it would have to be uh, something political. I don't, I don't know what it would be. Turn, I don't know, a release of a wonder, a wonder gas that would be very short, short term across the world. That would turn 
the brains of all populist authoritarian leaders into, <laughs> into sweetness, sweet sugar. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've, we've had one global pandemic. There's no reason that we couldn't orchestrate something else on a on a global level. Yeah, that's just one for the conspiracy theorists there, right at the end. Um, Ruth, thanks so much for joining me. Um, Ruth. Um, has a website www.ruthpadel.com where you can get her books as you can at all good bookshops i highly recommend tidings and emerald they are absolutely two of my favorites oh man thank you thank you and it's so lovely to talk to you and when are we going to work again together i know singing when are we yeah that would be so lovely um i was just wondering as well if there was a possibility of you doing a perhaps a book launch but online as opposed to actually going to the to places which I know wasn't the same but yeah I'd love to do that and you could you could um what about singing Andy Fernagel leaped <laughs> oh I know <laughs> I know there are all these Beethoven um Beethoven arrangements of Scottish songs Oh, it was really, really important to Beethoven to do those those Scottish songs because um, he grumbled. The guy was called Thompson, Ed Thompson, and he was in Edinburgh, and um, Beethoven did it for the money. and And he grumbled about the arrangements. He said, "You've you've made them too difficult for my pianists to play. You make them easier." And, and, <laughs> um, but he kept going at it. And then in a letter, he says he's learned from these these the shapes of the of the melodies, something about mm. bareness and spareness. And I think that went into some of the polyphonic shapes and some of the late of the late quartets. Incredible. Just learning from everything. Yeah, all the time. A lesson to us all. <laughs> Ruth Fidel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Anna. Good luck with everything. It's always a joy to speak to Ruth Pladell. Um, if you want to find out more about Ruth and her work, then do check out her website, www.ruthpadell.com. And she's active on Insta and Twitter. So head over there and give her a like and a follow. Thanks so much for listening to The Arts Respond. Um, do check out our other episodes and rate and subscribe. We'll be back with another episode soon. And until then, stay well. For my love is like a...